December the 20th, 2010. It's pitch black on stage at the Foxwoods Theatre in Broadway. Stunt performer Chris Tierney attaches himself to a safety cable and takes a deep breath. The centre of the stage lifts, creating a ramp. He's done this many times before. Breathing out, he runs up the ramp and leaps from its edge. Immediately, it's clear something is wrong. The cable hasn't gone taut. There's half a second as he floats in the air, realising that the other end of his safety line is unattached. Then, he's in free fall, plummeting 30 feet towards the concrete floor of the orchestra pit. He hits the ground with a sickening crunch. Someone screams. The audience is deathly silent. The show is cancelled. Don't worry, Tierney survived. With a fractured skull, a punctured lung, internal bleeding, three cracked vertebrae and four broken ribs. He was the latest in a long line of injuries suffered by performers at the Foxwoods, which was hosting one of the most troubled Broadway flops in history. Spider-Man, turn off the dark. Welcome to Cancelled. I'm your host, Leah, and this is the show where we look back at some of the biggest and most bizarre attempts to cancel people, corporations, and even countries. You may think the subject of our very rigorous and academic study deserves public disdain. You may think it's all a gross injustice, but it doesn't matter, because all of them were judged in the court of public opinion and ultimately cancelled. Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark is a cautionary tale. Calls for its cancellation began before it even made it to the stage. If they'd been listened to, perhaps performers wouldn't have been subjected to severe injuries and investors wouldn't have lost millions of dollars. Instead, those insisting the plug be pulled somehow inflated the hype surrounding the show, keeping it afloat rather than letting it sink. This is the story of a show which should have been cancelled, but wasn't for far too long. In May 2002, Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man film was released. It was an unprecedented success and a cultural phenomenon, spawning two sequels and a new era of superhero-obsessed fans. Comic book franchise Marvel sought to capitalize on the hype, and just three months later, they approached Tony Adams, a prominent film and stage producer, most known for his work on the Pink Panther franchise, to produce a Broadway musical based on the world's new favorite superhero. Adams jumped at the opportunity and immediately set to work on assembling a creative team. He recruited Bono and The Edge from rock band U2 to create an eclectic score which combined rock and roll with show tunes and dance songs. On their request, Adams brought on board the Tony Award-winning director of The Lion King, Julie Taymor. Taymor was globally renowned for her innovation and ingenuity, seeming a perfect fit for translating 2D cartoons to the 4D arena of live theatre. Rounding out the team was playwright Glenn Berger, who co-wrote the script with Tamor and Adams' business partner, entertainment lawyer David Garfinkel. The show was going to be a surefire hit for audiences and critics alike, a success they hoped would become another of Broadway's staple shows for years to come. Fast forward three years to October 2005, the eager creative team assembled in The Edge's New York apartment. Finally, they're about to sign contracts for the show, confident that this was the start of something spectacular, a sure-fire hit. Then, disaster struck. 
Before pens could touch paper, Tony Adams had a stroke. Rushed to hospital, he was declared dead two days later. The contracts remained unsigned and the cornerstone of the show's foundation had been lost. Out from the sidelines and into the breach stepped David Garfinkel, Adams' business partner. A lawyer with zero experience producing theatre, never mind shows destined for one of Broadway's biggest stages. While investors urged him to hire someone with experience, Garfinkel's desire to lead the groundbreaking production outweighed reason and he ploughed ahead regardless. A decision which would later come back to haunt the production team. The first warning sign had well and truly been ignored, and with a first-time producer at its helm, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark set its sights on revolutionising theatre as we knew it. But reinventing the Broadway wheel came at an incredibly steep cost. Tamor, the production's biggest asset, was also proving to be one of its biggest obstacles. Her ambitions soon outstripped their budget, which had already risen from a steep $30 million to a whopping $45 million, the most expensive in Broadway history. Her vision was gargantuan. There were talks of building a new theatre to house the high-tech set, part of which involved Spider-Man swinging around the auditorium, before she eventually settled on the Hilton Theatre, as it was then known. $4.4 million in rent was paid to the theatre to keep it empty while it underwent extensive renovations in order to accommodate the technical requirements of the production, some of which were yet to be invented. Millions of dollars were spent on effects created especially for the show, from flying rigs which allowed actors to clash in the air over the audience, to set pieces which extended over the stalls, and a risky web which would unfurl across the auditorium during the show's climax. In addition to directing, Tamor was also responsible for writing the script with Glenn Berger, who had never written a Broadway musical before. They let their imaginations run wild, creating a convoluted plot which fused the web-slinger's well-known origin story with a Greek myth of Arachne and Anthena, as well as incorporating cameos from various comic book villains and ones of Tamor and Berger's own invention. As the hype around the production grew, so did the leaks. As early as 2008, social media was awash with rumours that the plot was, quote, pretty incomprehensible, end quote. And some eagle-eyed Broadway fans discovered that Marvel was growing increasingly uncomfortable. As was reported at the time, and later confirmed by members of the creative team, Marvel was concerned about the script's mixed focus, with its incorporation of dark sexual themes deviating from the family-friendly, web-slinging show that many expected it to be. Yet again, the creative team were not listening to serious concerns. Their sights were set on a dark, edgy and complex production with exciting, death-defying stunts, never mind what the audience wanted. They were shooting for the stars without considering what may happen if they missed. Creating a convoluted plot which fused the web-slinger's well-known origin story with the Greek myth of Arachne and Athena. Sticking to her guns, Tamor hosted a sneak peek of her new show in March 2009 for ticket agents. The gritty, introspective songs charmed the audience, who were also introduced to a reportedly nervous-looking Garfinkel. It soon became clear why his nerves were jangling. Just five months later in August 2009, stagehands gutting and renovating the Foxwoods Theatre were ordered to stop working. Those building the enormous complex sets were ordered to put down their tools and agents selling tickets were told to cease trading with immediate effect. The money had run out. 
Garfinkel, who had deferred all responsibility for creative decisions to Taymor, had let the purse strings slip from his grasp, and it's reported these debts amounted to a staggering $25 million. In panic, stagehands and set decorators flocked to the banks to cash their paychecks, afraid they'd bounce. Meanwhile, the show's investors desperately reached out to other Broadway producers, hopeful one of them could offer a financial lifeline in exchange for a large stake in the show's eventual profits. On investigating the books, these experienced producers discovered the production was in severe dire straits. Just to break even, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark would need to sell out every seat in the theatre every night for five years. Investors pleaded with Tamor to discuss scaling back her vision, but she would not compromise. A stalemate had been reached and production ground to a halt. Garfinkel, despite being at the centre of the storm, wasn't answering his phone. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it. Been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show. But my listeners wanted to write the ad for me. And here are some of the things they said. Not your regular juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you will instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. The press caught wind of the show's troubles, and what had previously been gossip and speculation became news. In his regular column, Michael Rydell, a writer at the New York Post, began voicing concerns about the show's safety, both for actors and for audience members. His unease was dismissed by the show's promoters and the machine whirred on, though it was hitting other roadblocks. The production was due to open in February 2010, but with just six months to go, they couldn't be further off track. The theatre was not ready for the set, which was not yet built. The script was reportedly ludicrously complex, and to top it all off, the actors had not yet begun to rehearse. Rumblings of rifts within the creative team were gathering steam. Would the show survive? While many began to wonder if the show could, or should, be cancelled, for the producers, this wasn't even considered. The production team had poured their hearts and souls into the show, and its financial backers needed to recoup the millions of dollars they'd sunk into its creation. Tensions were flaring between the fractured creative team, but their reputations were on the line, and if the show flopped, it could have marked the end of their careers. There was simply too much at stake. Too many people had invested too much into the show, and the only way to recoup their time, money, and resources was to push forward and hope for the best. They believed in what they were building, and they were determined to finish it, come hell or high water. The team weren't ignoring alarm bells, they were ignoring sirens. Pride often preludes a fall, and what a fall it would be. It was Bono who finally found a producer willing to lend a helping hand. Michael Cole, a music promoter with previous theatrical experience, signed up and Garfinkel was relegated to the sidelines. 
now topping $65 million, Spider-Man's budget was in need of a huge amount of money to resume production. Cole spent six months successfully raising the funds, a substantial sum of which was invested by Jeremiah J. Harris, the owner of the scenic workshop where the sets were being built. Sources at the time noted that Harris slightly stumped up the sum because he was owed so much money by the production that his company would go bankrupt if it didn't make it to opening night. By May 2010, the funds had been found. A new opening night was slated for December 2010, with previews beginning in November, a whole nine months later than planned. On November 28, 2010, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark had its first preview to a packed-out theatre. Everybody involved was desperate for the disaster-prone show to go well, but incredibly, this first preview was also the first time they'd ever tried to run the whole thing from start to finish without stopping. Everything was going relatively smoothly, until a stunt went wrong just moments before the interval. The actor playing Spider-Man was left dangling over the audience, seven rows from the stage, and had to be awkwardly pushed back on stage by a stagehand wielding a large pole. This technical hitch was the first of many. Throughout the preview period, the supposedly advanced technical equipment repeatedly failed, resulting in many of the shows being stopped early. These show stops became infamous, but they were soon dwarfed in the media by the notorious injuries which continually befell the cast. One performer broke his ankles, and his replacement then broke both their wrists, performing the very same stunt. The cast suffered sprains, strains, broken bones, and concussions throughout the show due to the complex requirements of the production and the unreliable machinery upon which they depended. Injuries became commonplace, but instead of the public concern and outrage towards the performer's lack of safety, a fascinating phenomenon ensued. Comedians created sketches based on the growing number of injured Spider-Men, and the press ran long pieces about the show's rocky finances. On the front page of The New Yorker was an image of a hospital ward populated entirely by recovering bandaged Spider-Men. For the wrong reasons, it was top of the cultural conversation. Audiences were hungry to witness a disaster in what critic Scott Brown termed Spidenfreud, a rift on the German Schadenfreude, meaning to take pleasure in someone else's pain. The very reasons for which the show should have been cancelled became its primary selling point. As notoriety created intrigue, what would happen to the performers who were risking their lives every night? My audiences get to witness one of the biggest disasters to grace New York's famous Great White Way. Audiences were transfixed. It was like watching a car crash in slow motion. They knew it was bad. The headlines and social media told them so, but they were drawn to it like moths to a flame. After the disastrous first preview, ticket sales topped $1 million. By the first few weeks of 2011, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark had the highest box office sales on Broadway. Amongst this bizarre anti-hype, calls for the show to be cancelled were growing louder. Michael Rydell, the New York Post reporter, was furious. His concerns about the actor's safety had proven true, and he began to let rip in his regular column, condemning the show's ballooning budget and dangerous stunts. He wasn't the only one worried. Journalists from the New York Times, Vulture, and The Observer also published their concerns, suggesting that the show couldn't and shouldn't continue. But their protestations and frustrations were flattened by the public's seemingly positive response. Flocking to the theatre to see Broadway's latest flop, the show's naysayers actually kept its lights on. We often hear stories about how the public bring about cancellations, but this is a clear example of how they accidentally prevented one. 
As a result of the ongoing technical difficulties, the endless injuries and the audience's trouble understanding Tamor's convoluted plot, the decision was made to cancel the scheduled opening night and extend the preview period. Frustrated, the press decided to come and review the show anyway, even though it was very clearly not ready. It was almost universally panned. Borderline incoherent, declared The Hollywood Reporter. The New York Times likened it to a persistent headache, and Slate labelled it lurid, overeducated, underbaked, confusing, and distracted. The Guardian lamented that $65 million had never looked so cheap, adding, quote, The actors have the look of the orchestra aboard the Titanic, valiantly doing their best though they know this ship is going down, end quote. The production was savagely torn apart by the media, who added their voices to the ever-evolving public furore surrounding the show. The cast and crew were exhausted, rehearsing endless cuts and changes during the day and then performing in the evening. Newspaper headlines, magazine gossip and social media chatter were all of one mind. It was no longer a matter of if the show should be cancelled, but when. It was unsafe, expensive and, for lack of a better word, bad. Tensions between the creative team were boiling over. Tamor was defiant, telling the cast that it didn't matter what the public thought and that they must stay true to their original vision. Berger was secretly planning drastic renovations to the script and the producers were caught between the two. Critics called for the show to be brought to its inevitable end and audiences continued to pack the theater in their thousands, desperate to see this accident-prone, critically condemned, multi-million dollar disaster while they still could. Producers, while frustrated by the reception, understood that the window of public interest was closing fast and they needed to make significant changes to keep the lights on. In March 2011, after a messy backstage coup, Julie Tamer was fired from the production. A sixth postponement was made to the show's official opening with the announcement that all performances would be cancelled between April and May so that the newly installed creative team could make drastic tweaks to, quote, the story, the songs, and the sound, end quote. By the time the show reopened, it was completely different. While the ambitious technical stunts still remained, almost the entire second act was cut, along with several main characters placing Spider-Man's origin story front and center. After 183 shows, the longest preview period in Broadway history, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark officially opened on June the 14th, 2011, six months after it had originally been slated for the stage. While overshadowed by the ongoing legal battles between Tamor and the show's producers, reviews of the production were certainly more favourable, if mixed. While it was turned by some as a fun family show, other reviewers called it a colloidal mush and a bloated monster with bad music. Not an unprecedented success, but better than it had been. While ticket sales initially surged with theatre-goers keen to see the changes made to the most infamous Broadway production in recent memory, they soon began to fall as the show continued its belligerent run. Unfortunately, those declining ticket sales would spell the show's eventual demise. The final budget for Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark was a whopping $75 million. To put this into perspective, the typical budget for a new Broadway show ranges between $5 and $15 million. On top of this, the weekly production budget required to keep the show running was $1.3 million, 
This meant that the show would most likely operate at a loss for at least the first five years of performances, even if every single seat was sold. And then came August the 15th, 2013. The audience had settled into their seat for the beginning of Act 2. Music blasted from the speakers as a platform lift began to rise, bringing with it the Green Goblin and his captive scientists. Except something was wrong. The screams coming from the cast were real. One of the scientists, a dancer named Daniel Curry, had his right foot trapped between the lift and the stage door, and every centimetre the lift moved, the further his leg was being slowly pulverised by the machinery. Not for the first time, the show was cancelled, and Curry was sent to hospital. He would never dance again, and later sued the show's producers for negligence. This was the final straw. The show's dwindling ticket sales left the producers unable to afford its high-running costs, nor the injury insurance for its battered and bruised performers. Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark closed on the 4th of January 2014, having made back just 15 million of its $75 million budget. It is unusual that we encounter a situation where calls for cancellation were left unheeded. Had producers listened to the alarm bells sooner, perhaps millions of dollars and producers' reputations could have been saved. Perhaps Chris Tierney could have been spared a traumatic injury and Daniel Curry would still be able to dance. To this day, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark remains the most expensive Broadway production in history, and the majority of the money spent on the show simply disappeared without much to show for it. A financial sinkhole and a physical danger to performers, there were many opportunities for producers to call time on the project, but why didn't they? Perhaps it was hubris, an excess of pride and confidence in the creative team's vision. While Tamer was eventually fired for her refusal to compromise, blame must be divided equally between all those who endorsed or failed to challenge her direction, resulting in the production being a confused, bleak Greek tragedy instead of a family-friendly cartoon romp. Perhaps it was ambition. Eager to create something never before seen, the producers ran before they could walk, banking on unreliable technology that hadn't quite been invented yet, which proved to be exceptionally expensive and alarmingly dangerous for performers. Perhaps it was fear and guilt. Dealt a losing hand, the creative team kept throwing more money into the ring in desperate attempts to stay afloat. In launching the ship, they'd become responsible for the livelihoods of all those on board, and they couldn't face letting them down. Regardless, it's clear that audiences were equally culpable. Calling for the show's cancellation may have been the right thing to do, but instead of boycotting the show, it was these very calls that drew many people to the theatre, keeping the show afloat when perhaps it should have been left to sink. It was a perfect paradox, the public and the producers sustaining one another until the inevitable end caught up with them both. And here we find the moral conundrum inherent in cancellations. Scandals can often add fuels to fires rather than dousing them. And what are cries for cancellation other than fuel? Whether it's taking to social media, making headlines or physically protesting, sometimes we are furthering the reach of the very thing that we feel is causing harm. There is no perfect answer. If the personal people facing cancellation aren't listening, then what does trying to cancel them achieve? On the flip side, how can people express their concern, their pain or their frustration? And ultimately, will it make a difference to the history books? Famous or infamous, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark will never be forgotten. In that sense, 
it achieved its goal. This episode was written by Michael Chakravarti. This is a Broccoli production.